My goal is simple. I would like to encourage you and inspire you and motivate you to take risks for the glory of Christ and for the cause of God. And my approach will be to use biblical illustrations of risk takers. I think it's true from Scripture. I'll try to show you that it's true. And I know it's true from my experience that uh, very little is accomplished in advancing the gospel without risk, without taking risks. I think one of the great jobs of the pastoral life of ministry is to take risks and to cultivate an atmosphere in which people take risks with you and they consider it normal to take risks. I think effective pastoral leaders create an atmosphere in which the lovers of the status quo and the defenders of security and comfort and risk avoidance and prudence are in the minority and are are not able to control the church. And that that takes a long time and it takes a positive orientation on risk, but it must be done, I think, if the church is going to move where you want it to move. Almost all of you, I think, here in this room today are at a, a juncture in ministry where the next step will be risky. They're very different around the room, but if we just took five minutes alone, quiet, and said, now, what God, what might he be calling me to in the next year, five years, or ten years that feels really risky? And I think almost all of you are there. And some of you came here hoping that you would get the courage and the wisdom to know what that means. And I hope this message is one of the means God uses to do that for you. Let's begin with a definition. A risk is an action that exposes you or others with you to loss or injury. If you take a risk, you could lose face, you can lose money, and you can lose your life. And I'm saying that's a good thing. It's a good thing to risk you losing face and money and life. I don't mean all risks are good. You know that it's not the case. Paul escaped out of Damascus in a basket, and the wise man went back another way. And Jesus said, let those who are in Judea flee. So I don't mean that... Every stupid activity is commendable. (laughs) But more of them are than you think. That's the nature of risk. It exposes someone to loss and injury. Now, there's a second question. Why does it exist? That is, why does the possibility of risk in life and ministry exist? And the answer is, ignorance. The only reason risk exists is because you don't know what's coming tomorrow. 
God cannot take risks because he knows perfectly what's coming tomorrow. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Never has God taken a risk. When the Son of God came, every step was planned. Every nail, every thorn. There was no risk in Jesus' ministry. When he talked about tomorrow, it is, I will go up and they will spit in my face and they will pull my beard and they will crucify me and in three days I will rise from the dead. That is not risk. That's planned sacrifice. The reason you can risk is because you don't know what's coming tomorrow. It's not so with us as it is with God. He cannot take a risk in spite of many foolish books that are written these days. You can, and I'm arguing that you must, must. You do not know if you will live before, I mean die before I'm done here. You ever lie awake like I do just before you go to sleep at night and Take your, your hand and put it on your pulse and look at the clock and, and count to see just what kind of a pulse rate you have. And when I do that, I would guess it's about 68 right now. I have a really slow heart rate. Um, anyone, if God says that's enough, it's over. And you wake up in the presence of Christ, or in hell. That's an awesome thought. You should think that before you go to bed at night. (laughs) You really should. Get right with Jesus. Sweet fellowship as you go to bed. Be okay. You wake up, is this a dream? He'd say, no. This is not a dream. This is heaven. What a way to go. You can't even avoid risk. When you sleep, it's everywhere. And we, in the church, we have this enchantment that we live in, that life can be lived, ministry can be lived risk-free. Missions can be done risk-free. There's such a thing as a closed country. Well, let me give you some biblical examples of risk-taking. Because I, I simply want you to come away... One thing Piper said, risk is right, risk is right, risk is right. So that's the only thing you're going to remember, and I hope, I hope it helps. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 10. I've got about four examples, and you can go and look at them with me, or you can just listen, whichever you want. But I'm going to Second Samuel chapter 10. I love this scene. I used it when I first came to Bethlehem to describe my relationship with the very first assistant minister that I had, Glenn Ogren, back 26 years ago. Now, there are lots of us, but there was a day when it was just me, and I was doing everything, and then there was Glenn, and then there were others. And I used these. I love this picture of Joab and Abishai. The situation is that the Ammonites are, they really did a stupid thing. David respected Nahash, and he died. And so he sent to his son, uh, 
Haman, a respected group to pay his tribute to his dad. And and they cut off half their beards and cut their clothes off at the middle and shamed them. And David is outraged. And they know he's outraged. And so they hire the Syrians to protect them. And so you've got the Ammonites and the Syrians coming and pincering David. And that means Joab and Abishai. And here they are on the field between the two enemies. Verses 11 and 12, I love these words. They just make my spine tingle with a sense of camaraderie that I hope many of you feel when you're at a place like this. This is Joab talking. If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us play the man for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. What is that? May the Lord do what seems good to him. That's pure risk. He does not know how it will go. We just know we're going to fight for the cities of our God. May the Lord do what seems good to him. So let every time you you sense the passion to move forward and do something fresh and do something new for the cities of our God and for the glory of Christ, find a comrade, find somebody who's like that in the church and say, Let's do this, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. You know, when I came to Bethlehem, I would say in so many deacons meetings, we didn't didn't even have elders in those days, took 10 years to persuade this Baptist church that elders were in the Bible. Isn't that ridiculous? (laughs) And I used to say, as we, we were venturing things, and I wanted to try new things in the neighborhood and new kinds of outreach and, and, and other things, I would say, brothers, let's fail at something. You know what I mean? Let's fail at something. You can't do anything if you don't risk failure. And if, you, if your whole mindset is protect yourself from failing, you can't do anything. It's paralyzing. And so I plead with them, let's fail at something. I, I can imagine if, if Abishai didn't have the same guts that Joab had, he, 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 would, he would say, I'm not sure this is a really wise way to divide the troops. And I, I think we should just retreat up the hill. And, and I think Joab would say, come on, let's fail for God and the cities of God here on this field. So that's the kind of mindset I would love for you to, as a pastoral leader, cultivate in your church. Let's go to the book of Esther. You all know where I'm going now, don't you? You know what I'm going to do. This is for the women and all of us men who admire women like Esther and others. You know the situation. This is Babylon again. Not, not again. Uh, this is Babylon for the first time. Got another one in Babylon. Mordecai has a young cousin. Her name is Esther. He adopted her. She was an orphan. Raises her up. She's a beautiful woman. She becomes the queen to Ahasuerus. She's a Jew. He doesn't know it. Haman persuades him to decree that all the Jews should be exterminated. 
And Mordecai hears of this and says to Esther, you've got to risk it. Now, there's a law. You know this. It's, this is not from external sources. This is from the text. There's a law that if you go unbidden into the king's presence, you will die if he doesn't lift his golden scepter. And so Mordecai says, you've got to do that. These people are all going to be slaughtered. And I know you could lose your life, but we're going to lose ours anyway. So here's what she says in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. These words that I think are right at the heart of the meaning of the book. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink nor three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do and then I will go to the king though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Oh, I love Esther. And I love Joab. There are so many people like this in the Bible. And so few today. So few. Ready to to go to the hardest mission world. The Muslim world. The Hindu world. The Buddhist world. These masses across Central Asia. Closed. Hostile full of violence against those who say there's one way and it isn't Muhammad. That's dangerous. It's the only way the job will get done. Where are the Esthers and the Joabs? Risk is right. Now we stay in in Babylon and go to Daniel. And there's several possibilities in Daniel, aren't there? Let's go to uh, chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's this monument that Nebuchadnezzar put up and said, everybody must bow down here. And they don't do it. And they're brought to the king. Chapter 3. And he says to them, I'm going to burn you alive if you don't do this, if you don't bow down here. And here's what they say, verses 16 and 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. So they're even feisty about their answer. They're just in his face. If you, if it be so, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. We know our God can deliver us. We know his will is that we not bow down. We do not know if he will rescue us from this fire, 
he may rescue us in heaven, but we're not bound down. That's a risk. Took their lives in their hands. Risk is right. Who's the, who's the biggest risk taker in the New Testament? And the answer to that is Paul, at least as far as we know. Not Jesus. His was planned sacrifice every step of the way, ordained, embraced in obedience. But Paul, he's on his way to Jerusalem, chapter 21 of Acts, book of Acts. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's got an offering he's been taking. He's bound in the Holy Spirit, he says, to go to Jerusalem. And he gets as far as Caesarea. And a prophet named Agabus comes down and says in chapter 21, verse 10, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this, this girdle and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He bound his own hands and feet with that and using it as a symbolic statement of what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. And so they all beg Paul, don't go. Don't go. And verse 13, he says this. Acts 21, 13. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Luke, the next verse, says, And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And said, the will of the Lord be done. If I perish, I perish. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Nebuchadnezzar, we're not bowing down. God reigns here, and I'm going to Jerusalem. That's risk. He already knew, well, if Agabus is a true prophet, I'm going to be bound. But what after that? Will I be killed? Will I be kept in prison the rest of my life? Will I be banished? I don't know. And it doesn't matter. I'm going. What's your next step? You know, he, he did all that, going to Jerusalem, after he wrote 2 Corinthians. Now, that's relevant. Because we find in Second Corinthians, more than any other letter, the catalogs of this man's sufferings, right? I'm going to read a section from chapter 11 that you're familiar with. You can look at it with me if you want. Second Corinthians 11:24. He had said in Acts 20, the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. You know, he almost didn't have to take any risk because he was so certain that he was going to suffer. But he never knew when it would come. He never knew what form it would take. He never knew how severe it would be. He just knew in every city, the Holy Spirit's telling me, suffering awaits me. That was his life. But you don't feel the force of it until you read these verses in, in chapter 11 of Second Corinthians. They are simply breathtaking. How are you doing in your suffering in ministry, in your willingness and readiness to take risks of your faith and your money and your reputation, your life, your family. Jesus said, he who would come after me must hate 
his wife and his children and his own life also. I think that means you will be called upon to do things that will look to undiscerning people like you hate your wife. And you don't, but it's going to look like that to everybody else. Hopefully not to her. Hopefully you married the right person. But many of you know that would be an unkind thing to say. Some of you didn't, which makes your life very hard. Love her. Stay with her and pray that God might give her the same heart. And it works the other way as well, maybe more often. The wife ready to lay her life down, do something radical. And the guy's chicken. I deal with both kinds in my church when it comes to mission. One, one feels a call so powerfully, and the other dragging his feet. There's a couple in Bangkok right now. It took him eight years to get on board with his wife. And they're there, together now, radical. And I've seen it go exactly the other way. Took her five years, and she's on board. But when it says you must hate your wife, I think it means there are behaviors in ministry and in missions that are just going to look inexplicable to the grandparents. What are you doing, my grandbaby? I had a man tell me one time, no, that's not quite accurate. We get it right. I had a man say to his son who told me, I'd, I'd worked with this guy for 12 years, his family, and now they're ready to go to Central Asia in missions. His father's not a believer, had three little kids at the time, and his father said to him, if you don't come back, I'm going to kill John Piper. And he just no, no bones about it. If you don't come back, he's the one who's put this thing in your crazy head. And if you don't come back, he's dead. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> now listen to these words. Second Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I have been shipwrecked. Night and a day I have been adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety, for all the churches. What does that mean? It means that Paul never knew where the next blow would come from. Every day, every day, it was uncertain how the suffering would come and almost certain that it would come. He wasn't safe on the land He wasn't safe on roads. He wasn't safe crossing rivers. He wasn't safe with his own Jewish people. He wasn't safe with Gentiles. He wasn't safe with Christians because so many were false. He wasn't safe in the wilderness. He wasn't safe in the cities. He wasn't safe on the sea. Safety is a mirage. It ought to be. 
And yet our churches are filled, American churches are filled with people who only dream security. Now, until they drop dead, maximize safety, maximize security, maximize comfort. It's the total opposite of the biblical vision of life. Risk is normal. It's right. Be the kind of pastoral leader that awakens a mentality in your church that we take risks. That's who we are as a church. What is the cost if you don't do that? You can't escape risk. It's a mirage. It's an enchantment. It's a dream world to think you can escape it. Because there was a moment in Israel's history where they thought they could escape it, right? Go in there. Joshua and Caleb had it right. We can do this. We can take these people. Of course, they're giants. We have God on our side. And 10 to 12, they voted them down. And what was the cost? 40 years of aimlessness. How many churches have been sentenced by God to 40 years of fruitless ministry because there came a point where there was a possibility to take some risks, do a fresh new thing, and it was all voted down. Your job, you may have just inherited one of those churches. You may have stuck with it for a long time. And may God use these days. Because if you, if you listen to these other messages in relation to this simple statement, risk is right, every one of them relate to this. They're all related. May God use all of these messages and all we're doing here to give you a special anointing, something you've never had before, to get a breakthrough in that kind of church. To get a breakthrough where one or two will begin to gather around you and begin to pray and begin to believe God that a mindset that is so different can be awakened in this church. That's what I'm praying anyway, that God would do for you. What kind of risk should you take? Let's just talk about application for a few minutes. The kinds of things I might have in, in mind. I have four categories I'll mention just briefly and see if these kind of land on you. Yep, that's where I am. Number one, relationship risks. There are some people in your church, maybe in your family, and they really need to be confronted. And it is so hard. They're in sin. Their attitude stinks. Or they're blatantly watching pornography. Or, or, or. And you know, if you go to this person, it won't work. It's going to come back at you. It's just going to get you in big trouble. If you confront this person, try to do a little church discipline just at the one-on-one level. Then the two-on-one level. And then, oh, the big shaking church-on-one level. So there's a kind of risk 
relational risks. Just in a marriage where, and we need to talk, and it's just so hard to talk about this. Or with a kid. Teenagers are especially difficult because they could leave. They could leave. They could just open the window and be gone. And you don't know whether to confront. You don't know what to do. It's just not working. There's no escaping this. Relational risks. I've got a long list of examples here, but if I took them all, we wouldn't give any others. Um, I'll give you one concrete example, just so you know how imperfect I am, and we are. Um, 20 years ago, there was a magazine. It may still exist. I never read it, never intend to read it, called Partnership. It's a marriage magazine. Um, And it always had a picture of a happy couple on the front in ministry, smiling. And we got a call from Partnership and said, we'd like to feature you and Noel like we did you know, Ben and Loretta, Patterson and others. I just remember them. And uh, we'd like to come up there and interview you, take some pictures and, and write about, you know, your life and ministry together. I said, um, I think I better talk this over with Noel. We were hardly talking to each other. I mean, we could hardly talk. <laughs> They're going to come interview us as a model ministry couple. We talked it over. And now here's the risk. Should we can perform pretty good? We could do this. Or should I call him back and say, you know, we're not really happy right now. And uh, <laughs> and frankly, it would be a joke. We, we just couldn't do it. And that's what I did. I mean, that, this magazine is owned by Christianity Today. They all know me down there. I'm thinking, they're all going to start spreading rumors. Piper's going to get a divorce. Piper's got a broken marriage. (laughs) That's a risky phone call. But I did it, and as far as I know, that rumor didn't go too far. We've been married 37 years, and I'm really happy. (laughs) Um, That's enough on relationships. Here's number two. Risk your money. Good night. I, I hope... I mean, you don't have a lot of money, right? So this is not... You need to preach this. You need to preach to your people. Some are poor and some are rich. And you need to talk to them about money before the building program or the budget crunch. Create a mindset of risk-taking with money. Here's the text. I didn't give you a text on relationships. James 5.16, confess your sins. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another. That'd be the text. Here's the text on money. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting, this is Luke 21, 1 to 4, saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all the living that she had. Now, there are guys in my church who would say, that's really bad advice. Skip that text when you preach through Luke, because you're going you're gonna to cause people to do stupid things with their money and do imprudent things things. Jesus, why is he excited about this woman? Not quantity. Sacrifice. 
gave it all. I mean, what's she going to pay her rent with? I, that's a risky story. So preach it. There's, there's a mindset that Westerners who have so much. I mean, here we are. We're all clothed. We all got a lunch coming. We've all got a place to stay tonight. And what? Millions upon millions of the world don't have those things. And we, we store it up and build bigger barns and secure our retirements and do all kinds of things that are so out of step with the teachings of Jesus who said, you'll know where their heart is by where their treasure is. So create, I'll, I'll, I'll take a risk here. I thought about this. I tell this, just say this tomorrow because this is going to backfire on me because Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But I just think people are thinking these kinds of things. And so here's John Piper telling us about this. And he writes, what, how many books? And he must get a lot of royalties or whatever. I'm just thinking, that would be in my mind. Those books earn hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I don't touch any of that money and cannot touch any of that money. Because we saw it coming years ago. And it is hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. I want to get into the kingdom of heaven more than I want anything. Because God is there. And therefore, we created a foundation called the Desiring God Foundation. And all the, all the royalties go there before they ever come to me. It's run by a board. The money's just plowed right back into ministry. No royalties come to me. I live off the salary at Bethlehem, and even whatever they give me for doing this sort of thing goes straight to TCT. Treasuring Christ together is our, is our multiplying building fund. I, there I am. That was a risk because that's just pure boasting, right? And who knows my heart at this point? Only God, and I'm sure it is corrupt. And so pray for forgiveness for telling you that story because when, when Jesus said, give your alms, he said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, which means that your left hand should be slipping the money quietly to the needy, and your right hand, is being this close, can't even tell that's happening. And I just told 800 people. So, Jesus, forgive me, but may they do something good with that, especially if they write books. (laughs) Third application. I know this is not the main issue with you. Some of you are greedy and are are worldly and are carving ducks on your, your time off instead of reading books and hope to sell those for big bucks, but... uh, Most of you just need to love your people enough to create a risk-taking mindset in their handling of their money. Third application, witnessing to the gospel. Telling people about Jesus is risky because they're going to roll their eyes at you or pluck their tongue, and you're one of those born-again types or whatever. It feels so bad to be criticized. It just feels so bad to, to be Looked at like you're stupid. Luke twenty one twelve, they will lay their hands on you, and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be a time for you to bear testimony. 
verse 16, you will be delivered up by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Now, I don't know how you feel about Jesus' strategy at this point. They're going to deliver you up synagogues, put you in prison, take you before kings, take you before governors. Why? Because I got some people I want to hear the gospel. One's a jailer. And one is Festus. If you wonder why you have a flat tire on the way home tomorrow, there's a reason. God got a person somewhere unplanned by you and planned by him. If you get a, I don't know what they call them here or how they do it, but a ticket for parking in the wrong place or speeding, or can you speed here illegally? You can't in Germany. I don't know. But, but we can speed illegally. We have speed limits. And so if you go too fast, they give you a ticket. You've got to go to court. There's a reason why you're there. To bear testimony. <laughs> you say to the judge, Judge, I've never been so humiliated in my life. I'm a Christian. Christians should obey the law. It says so in Romans 13. I just want to apologize to you and in the presence of God, confess my sin and, and commend Christ to you. <laughs> I mean that. I mean that. Take a risk. Open your mouth. We, we, that's the strategy. It says so right there in Luke 21. God's strategy for getting the gospel to governors and kings and jailers is to get his people arrested. Says so. Application number four is ministry ventures. And here, I don't know the British scene well enough to even talk to you about what that might be for you, but I have the sense that America is known as being a kind of entrepreneurial place, kind of a make it happen, get it done, pragmatic, unthinking, low brow, unintellectual place, which is true. And praise God for it. And praise God that we're not the only kind of human being in the world. The world needs so much more than pragmatic, get-it-done kind of people. But, oh, I don't know, I don't know, but maybe there's a need for Spurgeon-like entrepreneurial dreaming in Britain. Maybe, just Spurgeon-like. Not Heibel's-like, Spurgeon-like. And if so, then pray that God would show you some venture that you should risk. Let me close by pointing out how this is possible. Namely, it it all comes from Romans 8. This is possible. All the risks that I've talked about and the ones you can imagine in your own life are possible because since God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he will most certainly with him give us all things. That's Romans 8.32, probably my favorite verse because it roots God's future grace in his past grace so solidly and assures me You 
cannot ultimately take a risk with me. The ultimate is no risk in following Jesus. It is absolutely sure. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You can't ultimately risk following God. Everything is going to work out for your good. God will take all your being slaughtereds and turn them for his great name and for your great good so that you can come to the face of any risk and right at the brink of death and say, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because he died, God will with him give us all things that we need now and that we could ever dream of later. And therefore, in this life, <laughs> this is the paraphrase of Luke twelve four. Fear not. You can only be killed. Don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Of course we're going to die. Some of us will be killed. But don't be afraid. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So, Father, I pray that you would take fear and risk avoidance out of our churches. I think I'm, I'm just preaching to the choir here. Most of these brothers and sisters inside are saying, I want to be like Esther. I want to be like Joab. I want to be like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. I want to be like the Apostle Paul. But it seems like every time I try to get shot down, my church won't go there. So, Lord, we're praying together now as a people. Have mercy upon our churches. Give them a mindset like Jesus. Make real disciples out of the believers in the churches that are represented here. So that when these brothers open their mouths to summon the people, to follow them into battle, the people say... For the cities of our God, we will go. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.